Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 119, and today we are going to talk about economics, specifically the rise of credit in Tudor England. But first, I want to remind you of two things. First, the free Tudor Summit is happening this coming weekend, March 2nd and 3rd. It's two days of talks from leading Tudor scholars like Tracy Borman and Leanda Delisle, plus bloggers and authors galore. It's all online virtual, so you can sign up and watch from anywhere. You can go to www.tutorsummit.com to sign up and see the full list of speakers. Also, as a special for the Tudor Summit, tickets to TudorCon are $50 off until March the 8th. Remember, TudorCon is the live event we're doing in October in Pennsylvania. I have a lovely new site up at www.tutorcon.info, tutorcon.info, where you can see all the speakers and get all the information you need in order to plan your trip. And the tickets will be $50 off until the 8th of March. So I have been reading the books by the philosopher historian Yuval Noah Harari. And if you haven't read his book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, you have to get it and you have to read it. It's amazing. So in his book, and then the second one, after that, Homo Deus, he discusses how a particular species of animal, the Homo sapien, went from just one more species to the one that completely dominates the world with a lot of focus on the cognitive revolution. And I'm not going to get into all of that this here because this is a Tudor history podcast. But in his work, he writes about the history of money as a unit of exchange and the level of trust that we need to have both in each other and in the government or person that issues the money. And that money is is in fact worth something. Consider that a dollar bill or a five pound note is just a piece of paper. You can't eat it, you can't drink it, and you can't take shelter in it. But you can go to a store and exchange it for food or water or shelter. And the reason you can do that is because the person who owns the store trusts that they in turn will be able to take your money and use it for their own shelter and food and water. The system works because we all believe and trust in it. And it's made a huge amount of growth possible for the homo sapiens. Um, for humanity to be able to have this system of trust in currency that we can create medicine and homes and all the stuff that we have that is powered by that that community trust, right? So the system of using money to represent value is thousands of years old. 
And along with that system came the person who needed to have something like a piece of equipment or seed to plant or an ox, and they didn't have the money. So they promised future earnings in exchange for the seed or the ox today. And this is called credit. Credit also goes back about 5,000 years. But something happened in the 16th century that changed both the entire way that the economy was structured and the use of credit. That something was the idea of a growth economy. Those of you who took basic economics in college will remember Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. It was the pivotal source that described capitalism. And it was the main event that happened on July 4th, 1776 was the publishing of Wealth of Nations. I remember that from Economics 101, eight o'clock in the morning my freshman year of of college. Um, It was a little bit painful, but I do remember that. But the forces that led to his 18th century work were already starting to move in the 16th century, so that 200 years later, when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, he was actually kind of just reporting on the changes that had been taking place over the course of two centuries. So Harari, in his Sapiens book, talks about the huge mindset change that came with the scientific revolution and the Reformation. And I want to talk about it here and then give you some examples from our tutor friends. This is an area that still needs a lot of development, and I look forward to new research coming out about it. Recently, the Social History Society in the UK put together a panel discussion on the history of money. So there are several historians who are studying the rise of credit and consumer credit in Tudor England. So let's talk about the economics of lending for a minute, shall we? The Bible prohibited lending money for profit. It was called usury in both the Old and the New Testaments. In Exodus 22, 25, for example, there's this verse. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. Even Jesus in the New Testament spoke against lending in the Gospel of Luke. He says, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. There's also the story of Jesus overturning the tables of the money lenders, and that was written down in both Matthew and Mark. Over the course of the 1500 years between when Jesus spoke those words and the Tudor period, the church had several levels of bans against usury. It differentiated between different types of loans, and there was lots of different rules about it, lots of different iterations. And that in and of itself is an entire podcast. But for our purposes, we should know that there were general bans against usury, namely lending for the purpose of getting money back through interest. There were a lot of loopholes and ways that people could justify lending or taking out loans and even trying to get through what exactly is interest. Um, you know, we, there was a lot of loopholes that you could jump through to make that work. And certainly lending to somebody, um, there was, there wasn't any problem with that. And it just was the idea of the interest that came back. So there was still a lot of lending going on in the medieval period, but the problems came out of if you were lending specifically for the interest for making money off of it, right? The economy during this period also saw very, very little growth. The prevailing viewpoint at this point was that it was a zero-sum game. If I got more money, it means that you lost money. Maybe I get more land, but that means taking it at your expense. There was only so much land. There was only so much gold. You couldn't just create wealth from nothing. 
It should also be noted that the prevailing mindset during the medieval period was that our life on earth here was a dress rehearsal for the afterlife. It was an audition for heaven or hell. We're all kind of hanging out waiting for the second coming of Jesus or the rapture and our awaited fates in the afterlife. I mean, certainly that's a generalization. I can hear some of you saying, no, but people, you know, had a good time and had, and certainly there was all of the love and romance and the crusades and all of the adventure and all, you know, pilgrimages and people traveling. All of that was going on, but there was still this sense in Europe that we were here rehearsing and practicing for what was going to come in the afterlife, just kind of waiting. The great societies of Greece and Rome set the tone, and now we were just waiting until the rapture, waiting until the second coming of Jesus, and that was what was going on. There was also the idea that everything that was good had already happened. The best was in the past. All of the medical discoveries had happened in Rome with Galen and Aristotle. If you wanted to learn medicine, you had to discover more of their works. If you wanted to learn about science, you had to read Plato. That was it. Rome had been the height. And ever since then, we were trying to put the empire back again and failing miserably. Nothing that humanity could build would ever match what the Romans created. You have to remember too that there were so many Roman ruins. In my town in Spain, there's Roman ruins the next the next hill over. There's an amphitheater and it was a, a kind of villa area where the retired generals from the main town would, would go to retire and um, and the soldiers. And, you know, people would be there seeing these. There's still the amphitheater. The theater is still there and it's huge and imposing and amazing. And you can only imagine what people would have thought building as they were in timber and, um, you know, in wood and seeing these ruins that had lasted through the centuries and just thinking, gosh, how can we ever build anything like that again? And seeing Rome as the period of this golden age in the past, and nothing that we were ever going to be able to do was going to be able to come close to that. It's shown in medieval literature, like medieval writers, such as Master Gregory. He was a 12th century man who lived in Oxford. He wrote a manuscript called The Marvels of Rome, and it's in Cambridge now. It describes the wonders of ancient Rome, from going through the city, city gates to the statues and the baths. Later on in the 14th century, another chronicler, Reinolf Higden, used it as a source in his own book, uh, it was called Universal History. So here we are about the year 1500. The greatest events of the past have already happened. We're waiting here. We're living our lives. We're, we're being humans, doing all of the things that humans do. But in general, the mindset is that the best stuff was in the past. And now we're, we're waiting for the second coming. We're literally taking what Jesus said about coming back, literally, and we're waiting for the rapture. The idea of improving and growing the economy is completely unheard of. If you talk to somebody in 1500 about the possibility of growing the economy at 2% a year or 3% a year, they would look at you like you were insane. There's nothing to grow. You only win more by taking it from others. So maybe you grow by 3% a year if you get 3% more land from the next guy over, but you're probably gonna have to fight for that. So there's a fixed pie, and you just don't grow that pie. Then along comes humanism and the scientific revolution. And guess what? The earth isn't the center of the universe. And we have a whole episode on that, right? There's more out there than we could ever comprehend. And guess what else? The Pope makes mistakes. 
Trade with new lands means that there's new products available to purchase, things that no one had ever even thought of before. And we see this growth in a consumer culture. Some historians have even argued that the Renaissance itself was just one big rise of consumerism. You can look at portraits and see the things. There's the famous portrait of the ambassadors, right? Um, And the, the things that are all strewn around on the tables, these luxury items that people have in the backgrounds of their portraits. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago with clocks, right? And so there's this whole idea that the Renaissance sees this huge growth of consumerism. And you have to have money to be able to get that stuff, but you also have to have money to be able to to sell it, to be a merchant who can trade in that kind of stuff. So there's a need for people to be able to have money to buy the goods and to buy the goods to resell them. And either way, there's more available to buy than ever before. And a new debate in religion meant that people started realizing that there was value here on earth, not just in waiting for the afterlife. You could prosper and enjoy life now. And even more importantly, for the first time, people began to feel as if the future was going to be better than today. And that Harari points out in his book, Homo Deus, is the essence of credit, the belief that tomorrow you will have more than you have today. If you come to me and you want to open a new cloth trading business with the low countries, you ask me to help you with that by lending you money. I have to believe not just that you're going to be successful enough to repay it, but that the people you are depending on in the low countries will also be successful enough to pay you. I need to believe that you are going to have that money in the future. And that is an awful lot of trouble to put in some. But as Harari points out, this trust is what creates growth. How does it do this? It allows me to pull from tomorrow's profits by financing my projects today. And in essence, by creating a form of currency that is backed not just by gold, the way money had been backed before, but by a belief in the future and a level of trust that we all put in each other. New religious scholars began to disagree with the ancient usury laws, Notably, John Calvin, who himself is a little ambiguous as to where he stands on credit, but his followers who came after him were certainly more liberal on it. Another theologian, the French Charles Dumoulin, wrote that loans were okay and wrote that if a lender lent money to a wealthy merchant and that merchant profited from the loan, the lender deserved to see some of that profit as well basically stating that interest on loans was okay. The idea of wealth began to change too, especially when it came to the creation of wealth in the middle classes. Dumoulin said that lending money was basically good because it allowed more merchants and tradespeople to engage in their work, and it gave them capital to get started that they normally wouldn't have. These ideas go to England, notably through Martin Busser, a German reformer who was a chair at Cambridge University in the mid-1500s. He wrote that ancient Roman law had actually allowed for 12% interest rates on loans for businesses, and that some countries already permitted such interest rates and were having a lot of success with creating more wealth from it. He also argued that lending was important for the prosperity of society. So the idea began to circulate that you should follow the no lending rule when it came to the poor. But for the rich, there was no reason why if you loan the money, you shouldn't also benefit from that risk that you took for them and the rewards that they had. This isn't to say that the opinion was universal. Elizabeth I's Solicitor General in 1592, Edward Cook, stated that all usury is damned and prohibited. 
But the main problem that many of the more Puritan reformers had to money lending was similar to the issues that people have with payday lenders today, that it preys on the poor and it destroys the lives that so that a few wealthy people can prosper. They also worried that it made the poor want to have more stuff. A rise in consumerism was frowned upon by the Puritans. Like with any prohibition, the people who were still performing the activity were getting fabulously wealthy. The people who lent money while usury laws were still in existence were charging incredibly high rates of interest. They justified it because they said that they needed to get something back in return for looking like a moral leper. And some of them were getting as high as 70%. By making lending money legal, interest rates were expected to go down. In 1540, Charles V was the first one to break from the Roman rule on usury, and he permitted business loans in the Low Countries with an interest rate of up to 12% in accordance with the ancient Roman laws. Rates higher than 12% were considered to be usurious, and that led to the modern belief that high interest rates are usury. You know, we think about, again, payday lenders charging such high rates, and we call that usury. That came from this idea that if you charge more than this ancient Roman rule, that was usury. Whereas, of course, the medieval church said that charging any interest at all was usury. So there was that distinction. In 1545, Henry VIII followed suit. He created a national interest rate of 10%. But his interest rate, while it was lower... It didn't make any distinction between business or personal loans. In 1545, Henry VIII followed suit, creating a national interest rate of 10%. But his interest rate, while lower, didn't make any kind of distinction between business or personal loans. And in 1552, that interest rate was reversed in the Protestant reign of Edward VI. And they had the comment that usury was a vice most odious and detestable. Then in 1571, Elizabeth I reinstated her father's law on interest rates, even keeping the same name as the statute. Her justification was that the repeal of the statute was impossible to enforce. People were still lending money anyway. At least this way, it could be regulated. It stated that any interest above 10 pounds for every 100 pounds was null and void. The new law was still framed in a religious perspective, though. It stated, For as much as all usury being forbidden by the law of God as sin and detestable, be it enacted that all usury, loan, and forbearing of money by way of loan, sale of wares, or other doings whatsoever for gain, above the sum of 10 pounds, for 100 pounds per year shall be forfeit. So basically, you can charge 10 pounds for every 100 pounds per year. The next part of this is the theories and beliefs of Sir Francis Bacon. He served Elizabeth, but primarily he's remembered for his work serving James I. He was Solicitor General, Attorney General, and Lord Chancellor. And he also drove the English ideas of credit and usury. He recognized that the growth of the economy depended on lending, and he decided that the best way to facilitate that was through regulating the interest rate. The goal was always to try to lower it. In particular, they paid a close attention to what was going on in the Netherlands, trying to recreate the same level of success that the low countries were having with their lower interest rates. Some people said they wanted to have higher interest rates because it would attract more investment. Other people said lower interest rates because it would make it easier for new businesses to borrow money. But it's interesting that by this point in the early 1600s, all of the arguments for and against the higher interest rates were from an 
the economic standpoint, no one was quoting the Bible any longer. By 1624, James I lowered the national interest rate to 8%. By the 18th century, it was down to 5%. And the rate kept being lowered until the usury laws were phased out completely in the 19th century. And then it just became a free for all. So that's it for this week. I think it's so it's such an important part of Tudor culture and society to think about these lending laws and this invention of credit and what it made possible in terms of exploration and trade and new businesses and the rise of the middle class that we see during this period. And it's something that I never really thought about that much. So I have a ton of resources, um, a lot of articles I found online. There's not really a lot of books on this at all. So I don't have a particular book review or a book recommendation to give you, but I do have a lot of notes and a lot of um, resources on the website at englandcast.com. And also you really do need to read Sapiens, at least a brief history of humankind by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And I'll have a link to that as well. It's an amazing book. So you can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO. That's 8016839756. Or Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash englandcast. And remember to sign up for the Tudor Summit at www.tutorsummit.com. And remember to get your TudorCon tickets, which are $50 off until the 8th of March. You can get them at www.tutorcon.info. All right, I will be back with you in another couple of weeks. Have a great week. Blow northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoorde boord in Bouwerbrieg, dat zoel is hem lees on zich. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 